All right, thank you, worship team. How are we doing tonight? Oh, normally um, I just say, I hope you're doing well. I don't ask, but thought I'd try something different because it's the new year, but um, hopefully you guys are doing well and you're enjoying uh, the new year. It's good to be back, seems like forever. Uh, For those of you who are new to the group or who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Lighthouse, and um, I, along with the core staff, uh, kind of oversee our fellowship group here, Praxis for Young Adult Singles. Um, As a ministry, we have been studying the Book of Romans, at least that's our main staple, and so we're going to get back on track and be in a very familiar passage tonight. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn in them to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, a very famous section of Scripture. And for tonight, we'll be studying verses 1 and 2. So follow along as I read our passage for us, and then we will seek the Lord's face and help in prayer. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help even now to discern, to discern your will as you have revealed in the pages of Scripture what is good, acceptable, perfect. We know that your word is true, that it is relevant and powerful, and we pray for humility, Lord, for open hearts and minds that will receive your word and be changed by it, that we might see what it means to live in light of eternity, to receive your mercy and then be people who exalt Christ, who desire to worship you. And so use your word to build up your church to make us strong by your grace in how we love you and serve one another, how we testify to the world of your glorious grace, the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a while since we've studied the book of Romans. About half a year ago, we left off right here at a very natural spot, a pivotal point in Paul's magnum opus. In the first 11 chapters, the apostle waxes eloquent on doctrine. He goes to great lengths to unpack his great thesis, which is made explicit for us all the way back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 where he writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's Paul's thesis. The righteous shall live by faith. And scattered across the next 315 verses, Paul leaves no stone unturned. He teaches and elaborates in depth on the righteousness of God. And if you're newer to the group or it's been a while, we're going to do a fast review, so buckle up. Beginning in chapters one to three, the apostle starts with human depravity, the bad news, if you will. He argues how we are all bankrupt in our sin, guilty of high treason against our creator. None is righteous, no, not one. And for that, we deserve death, eternal damnation. But God, some of the sweetest words in scripture, but God, God intervenes. He takes the initiative to pursue us, to save us, to address our biggest problem and make us righteous. How is this possible? In chapters four to six, Paul takes up the topic of justification by faith. That condemned in our sins, we don't look within ourselves to earn our standing before a holy God. No, we look outside. We look to another. That by faith, we cling to Christ and receive his righteousness. We are justified not by anything we do, but trusting in what Jesus has done. And miracle of miracles, through his life, death, and resurrection, we are made alive to God in Christ. This is revolutionary. And such a seismic shift sends shockwaves into the rest of our lives. It creates many questions, right? Okay, if we're saved by grace, does that mean what we do doesn't matter anymore? How are we then supposed to relate with the law? Well, Paul tackles that issue in chapters seven and eight. Living by faith doesn't mean we disregard God's commands and prohibitions. The righteous shall live by faith, yes, but we are liberated from the law so that we can submit to Christ as our king. By the power of the spirit, we are freed to obey God and live in light of his glory, of future glory that has grand ramifications for the present. And we survey God's marvelous plan, his redemption. And what's showcased is his wisdom, his unrivaled wisdom and his love that is so fierce, he will pursue us. And Paul takes up this topic in chapters nine to 11. In this section in the book, Paul unravels the difficult doctrine of election, that God is God, not us, and he will ordain what is right. He will choose to save both Jews and Gentiles. And that should leave us floored. Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament may have spurned and rejected their God, but it didn't catch him by surprise. It was so that he could turn and extend his salvation to the nations. And we are recipients of that grace today, that even here in the year 2023, 
at a young adults group in the South Bay, we can hear the word of God and have our hearts encouraged, stirred. This was always part of God's perfect design and decree. It's incredible. It's amazing. And as we behold the glory of his ways, the brilliance of his sovereign grace, we ought to join in with the apostle Paul. The climax and crescendo at the end of Romans 11 rips through our own chest as well as we echo with Paul. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's where we are. And we might ask, well, now what? Do we just bask in silence, in awe and wonder? Do we simply repeat the last verses of chapter 11 as a mantra till Christ returns? Now, while the bulk of our study thus far in Romans has been doctrinally heavy, has been theological, Paul doesn't intend to leave us stunned into passivity or just cerebrally stimulated. Remember, the righteous shall live. They shall live by faith. And Paul gives his attention to this subject matter. He transitions from our beliefs to our behaviors, from doctrine to deeds, if you will. And for the rest of Romans, from chapters 12 until the very end, the apostle deals with the application, the implications for those who truly get it, who truly understand the magnitude of this good news. And here, in these first two verses, Paul provides the governing principle for all the pragmatics he will discuss in the later chapters. He will show us now what Romans 11:36 for from him, through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, what this verse looks like in everyday life. To condense it into a word, Paul is going to talk about worship. Worship. Now, in our circles, worship is a word we toss around casually, right? It's an essential part of our Christian vocabulary. And we might associate it with, say, Sunday mornings or what takes place in church. Maybe we think of a sermon preached or hands raised while songs are sung. But listen, worship, worship is not strictly a Christian activity. Did you know that? Worship, you see, at its essence, is worth-ship. Worth-ship. It's about what we believe to be worthy of our time, attention, devotion, our resources, our very lives. Whether it be God, sports, family, career, or just our comforts, everyone, everyone worships. You see, anyone who is living is living for something. 
And in these two verses, the apostle narrows it down for us, what Christians worship by presenting first why we worship. Our first point for tonight is the motivation for worship, the motivation for worship. Let's read verse one again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, as a disclaimer, this will be our shortest point. So don't get too excited if you think we are on pace to be done in a record time of 15 minutes. It's just not happening. So I'm disappointing you up front. Uh, I know Corey came up to me and he saw that we were only going to do two verses uh, tonight. So he's like, oh, is this going to be a 20-minute message? No, it's not. But this first section is the briefest because we covered a lot of the material in the recap that I just gave. But Paul here is, what he's doing is he's squeezing all his previous teachings into that little phrase you see in verse 1, by the mercies of God. It's his summary statement. The apostle is hitting us now with the theological force of 11 chapters to call us to action, to stir us to worship. And notice Paul's method of persuasion. He's, he appeals. Appeal is not common language, right? I'm not approaching you after praxis and saying to you, I appeal to you, eat some snacks. No, it's weird. We reserve appealing for something special, something significant and serious. Furthermore, to impress us with the sense of urgency, Paul also closed his exhortation in a tone of affection. He takes time to address his readers, calling them brothers. So we have gravity paired with intimacy. Paul is tugging on heartstrings. This is family business. In fact, these new and eternal bonds we have are only made possible by the mercies of God. Therefore, this is a divine summons, a call to worship. Now, whenever we see a therefore, as good Bible students, we need to ask, what is the therefore there for? And it makes all the difference. If I say, give me all your money, you want to know what's coming before. What's the basis for my command? You know, I'm your pastor, therefore give me all your money. You just blow me off. Like, I don't care, you're a fool. But if I say, I have a gun, therefore give me all your money, then you're more likely to comply, right? Well, Paul uses this therefore, and he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, he coerces us to do something else, to do the following. Just look at the text, to present our bodies. This, the apostle declares, is your spiritual worship. Now, if you're using the ESV like me, you'll see a little footnote, which suggests another legitimate reading. Follow that little number two all the way to the bottom, and it says, or your rational service. You see, the word for spiritual can also be translated reasonable. It's the word logicon, the same root for logic, logical. Do you see Paul's point? The only logical response to the mercies of God is the worship of God. 
if we're gripped and undone by the gospel, by all that Paul has disclosed in the first 11 chapters, then what is more reasonable? What makes more sense than devoting ourselves to the one who has given us life? Nothing, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things, including our salvation, including our very lives. What's actually bewildering to the apostle is anything that runs contrary to that. What's illogical, what's unreasonable is to say that you belong to Jesus, but then to live for something else. You know what the Bible calls that? Adultery, foolishness, strong words, because it doesn't compute. It just doesn't make sense. Now, I do want to be clear on the sequence of events. Worship flows out of mercy, not the other way around. We don't present our bodies or worship to secure God's mercy, to win or curry his favor. No, genuine worship is reactionary, a visceral response when you recognize greatness, when you witness a ridiculous buzzer beater, or you're overwhelmed by a decadent meal, or you are simply in awe of God's grace to you. You don't need to be forced to worship. It's your reflex to glory. I know that sounds very abstract, ethereal, What does this look like then? Well, that's why we reach our second point, the metaphor for worship, the metaphor for worship. He says, to present your bodies, how? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't write, present your heart or your mind or soul or strength, all of which could work. After all, Jesus charged us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here, Paul hones in on the body, not to the exclusion of the other faculties, but to package everything together. Paul keys in on the body because it's the most economical, the fastest way of communicating totality, comprehensiveness devotion, worship is not simply intellectual exercise or some sort of mystic faith. It is a wholesale commitment to God as Lord and Savior, all of who you are. Without a body, we are unable to speak, see, touch, and hear, but it's through our bodies we live, move, and have our every being. The body is how we interface with the world, interact with one another. And Paul states our bodies are to be presented as a living sacrifice. Seems like a weird thing to say. Let me illustrate. Thanksgiving, I know it's hard to believe, was just a couple months ago. And for such a large family meal, where all your uncles, aunties, and cousins gather, various people are assigned to prepare various dishes. One person or family might be responsible for the green bean casserole, another with mashed potatoes. But if you and your family are playing host, more likely than not, you are in charge of what? The turkey. You have to brine and bake that fat 15-pound gobble-gobble. Well, on the night of the dinner, everyone brings their dishes together, right? And it is quite the spread. 
the main attraction is the turkey. But how awkward would it be if everyone surrounded the table, eager, hungry to feast, and you decided at the last minute to announce, wait, 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 wait. let me just keep a turkey leg. Actually, actually, I'm, I'm going to keep half of the bird. You would be judged instantaneously. Everyone would give you snide looks. Man, you just don't get it. You don't understand what Thanksgiving is about, do you? It's all or nothing. Praxis, you are the turkey. But in all seriousness, God wants all of you. He is not interested in partial offering, a sliver of your life or your leftovers. It is all or nothing. Anything else reveals you don't get it. You don't understand the mercies of God. Now, obviously, in verse 1, Paul is speaking metaphorically here. But it would have been a vivid parallel for his readers. The apostle draws from Israel's rich heritage, their sacrificial system that was central to their culture, their ways, their customs. Because back in the Old Testament, how did you demonstrate your devotion as a good Jew? It was through temple worship by presenting an animal for sacrifice, burning it on the altar, letting it be consumed for the Lord. Listen, centuries have passed. Many things have changed. But how do you demonstrate your devotion as a Christian? Worship. Worship is still about presenting a sacrifice. Worship is still setting a body on the altar. Worship is still about a sacrifice consumed for the Lord. The difference is that we're no longer bringing something else. We're bringing ourselves. And the rest of Romans has us inspect our lives to investigate if that's really the case. If there's any piece or part of our lives that we're holding back. As we will see in our next passage, are we serving others with humility and faithfulness? Are we contributing to the needs of others, showing hospitality, Romans 12, 13? Do we submit and show honor to the governing authorities that God has instituted, Romans 13, 1? Do we refrain from passing judgment or causing others to stumble, Romans 14? Look, these are not random snapshots of the Christian life. No, collectively, they portray a life completely given over to God, a worship that is whole. It's akin to signing your name at the bottom of a blank sheet of paper and then letting God fill out the rest just as he wishes. Now, Paul does help. You know, he stipulates some of the terms and conditions God has in mind. The sacrifice we offer, he writes, is to be living, holy, and acceptable to God. Now, each term underlines a different shade for our sacrifice. We usually associate sacrifice as final or ultimate, like some martyrdom or death. But the adjective living shows us the giving ourselves is not a one and done type of deal. 
No, in some sense, living for something is much harder than dying for something. We're to give ourselves daily a continual offering that while we are alive, our worship of God never dies. Holy underlines a life dedicated to the worship of God. You think about it, holy hands, holy temple, holy water. There's nothing special about a body part, a building structure, or liquid in a cup. What made these objects holy was what they were reserved for, what they were set apart for. So a holy sacrifice is a sacrifice set apart and devoted to God. And I find that both expansive and encouraging because it instills everything with purpose, an opportunity for worship. That practice your job, your words, your thought, your hobbies, your relationships, you can make them holy when they are set apart and devoted to the Lord. Now, up to this point, we may assume our sacrifice is primarily a a logical calculation or just about reasonable, what's reasonable in our service. But God is not some detached robot or an authoritarian obsessed with strict compliance. This last adjective dismisses such a caricature. Acceptable sacrifice. Acceptable highlights that God is involved. It brings us close to him. You know, if you've ever wrestled with, man, does anything I do matter? Do my efforts and actions mean anything to God? Paul's resounding answer is emphatic, yes, yes. Our sacrifice is received and accepted by faith. Our worship can please God. And that is not blasphemous to say, do you get that? You can bring a smile to his face, if you will. That God is engaged. He's delighted and happy when he sees his children obey and doing well. So our sacrifice is to be living, holy, and acceptable. And what's incredible about this picture of worship is that it's a metaphor. Removing all the precise instructions and literal boundaries we read about in the Old Testament, like books like Leviticus. Worship isn't confined to a certain place like the tabernacle with Levitical priests. It isn't contingent on the number of animals you own and can afford to offer. Paul is reiterating what Jesus taught, that worship is now in spirit and truth. It can happen wherever you are and in whatever you do. There is no divide between sacred and secular because everything can be sacrificed and given to God. And we worship by offering ourselves. Now, if that's still vague and we need additional help, Paul adds meat to the bones. Our third point, the means for worship. The means for worship. Look at verse two. He says, which is your spiritual worship? How do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We'll pause there. So we're not left to our own devices or wisdom to figure this out. Paul elaborates on how we're to worship. 
two exhortations to help us to present ourselves as sacrifices, living, holy, pleasing to God. First, a prohibition followed by a prescription, a negative, and then a positive. And both, both are absolutely necessary because they're intertwined. There is an inverse relation between conforming to the world and being transformed by the word. Paul starts with the first. Do not be conformed to this world. You see, part of who you are before God is demonstrated in who you aren't with the world. Paul is patently clear. We're not to pattern ourselves as Christians, to plan our lives like our non-believing friends or family members. We're not supposed to fit in with the mold of this world. Now, when you hear that, the world, what comes to mind? Maybe your thoughts gravitate towards what we usually associate with the world. Maybe premarital sex, illegal drugs, excessive drinking, drive-by shootings, maybe greed, abuse of power. But I think that's why Paul chooses his word carefully. In the Greek, in the original, it's not the typical word we might expect, like cosmos, which is used for planet or earth. The word for world here is aeon, like a season or time. The nuance Paul is placing is on the spirit of the age, the culture we currently find ourselves living in. Do you see how comprehensive this then is? Worldliness, the spirit of this age, is much more subtle and insidious than partying up, committing murder, or taking advantage of the vulnerable. Sure, it may include those things, but Paul is warning of the seemingly innocuous. It can simply be adopting the same ambition, pursuing the same American dreams as your non-believing coworkers. Secure a stable job, have a nice home and family, and then coast into retirement. It can be spending money on food, gadgets, luxuries without batting an eye or giving any thought different than your unbelieving friends. It could be dating around or holding the same opinion as your community on organized religion, politics, and abortion because that's the milieu you're swimming in. But let me ask, should those who have dedicated themselves as living sacrifices to God, share the exact same convictions and outlook with those who are dead in their sins. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we can't eventually land on the same views for legislation or buy the same brand of clothes as our pagan neighbors. I am just prodding us to search deeper, to do a little digging. Are our beliefs, values, is our thought process for the choices we make or the positions we take any different than those who embody the spirit of this age? Because it should be. Our operating system is for the worship of God. We ought to be worlds apart because we are not of this world. In fact, 
Paul flips the coin to show us what distinguishes us from the culture of the time. Look, Christianity is not merely about avoiding worldly things. If that were the case, you could just be a hermit and be a Christian. No, our nonconformity is a result. It's a byproduct of our commitment, our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We don't conform because we have been transformed. This word for transformation is a unique one. It's used to describe Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when for a moment he peels back his human flesh to reveal his unadulterated glory. And the word appears again to describe how we too are being transformed into Christ's likeness as we behold his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And in our verse in Romans, Paul is connecting the dots, disclosing how this happens, the means. You see, when we pattern our thoughts after God's thoughts, when we fill our minds with his word, It changes us. But there's something very specific about our text. The apostle doesn't phrase the charge as, be transformed by the word. I mean, he certainly could have. Many other passages support such an idea. What Paul is doing is he's taking it a step further. It's as if he holds the scripture, the living and active word, and he is placing it, he is pushing it into our minds be transformed by the renewal of the mind. As D.L. Moody said, the scriptures were not given for our information, but for our transformation. God is not after a working knowledge of what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches, but a transformation that stems in the mind, reaches the heart until a body is offered, a sacrifice presented in worship of God. The renewal of the mind pinpoints where transformation starts. That as the word of God conforms us, not to the world, but instead to the way God thinks. It's like what we've been hearing this past Sunday. We need to meditate. We need to realize we are always meditating. We are always being shaped one way or the other. What we think impacts who we become. So pause and consider. Are you taking your cues from the word of God or from the world? Be honest with yourself. Do your views on, say, friendship, finances, sexual identity and ethics, on government, career, can your convictions on these topics be traced back to the pages of scripture or to what our society is preaching. If transformation hinges on what's going on up here, we need to soberly evaluate whether our thinking is being darkened by the world or illumined by the word. It is no exaggeration, no exaggeration to say 
the battlefield of worship is fought in the mind. But let that cheer you up too. I don't mean to be all depressing, but there's a positive side to this because it means what happens on a Thursday night, on a Sunday morning, or any time you open up the inspired word of God. It is no trivial matter or sheer duty. It is an occasion to expose yourself to the glory of God to be transformed. And oftentimes this glory, it comes to us through rather mundane means. There's nothing particularly flashy or innovative about quiet times, right? But an old wooden treasure chest can still contain precious gold. And we put ourselves in the pathway for transformation anytime we speak, meditate, or encourage each other with the word of God. On our own, we're being changed as we review our memory verses in the shower or listen to a sermon while at the gym. In community, our minds are being renewed when we fellowship over the scriptures in small groups at lunch while shopping or waiting our turn at pickleball. And as we utilize these means, we're not only growing in Christ-likeness, but our confidence. Look at how the rest of verse two ends. So be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm willing to bet most of us struggle with the will of God. It plagues and haunts us. We're unsure about life, trying to guess what God wants us to do. Should I take this job? Should I move out to a different area? Should I pursue that individual? But God is not interested in being our magic eight ball or spitting out answers. Think for a second. An answer key to 50 questions only supplies what? 50 answers. But if you master the concepts, say of math, you can apply those principles and tackle any math problem thrown your way. Master God's word and you will possess the very mind of God, wisdom for any decision and dilemma you might encounter. And when God and his glory, the worship of him, become our greatest desire, our biggest priority, it pierces through the fog and simplifies everything. It becomes a compass, a true north for all the twists and turns in our journey. I mean, aren't those the people you seek out when faced with a challenge? We consult those who are godly and wise because they always seem to know what to do. But I'll let you in on a secret. It's no hidden talent. They have just immersed themselves in the word. So they have insight into what God would say or do. Wisdom is gained in a mind renewed by the word. We want shortcuts. God wants sanctification. We are so concerned with end results God concentrates on the process because the right process will lead us to the right place. Look, 
We need to have the humility to admit we're going to make mistakes. You're going to experience growing pains, but that's okay. His grace is sufficient. It's why Paul calls it a testing. This is not something achieved overnight. Maturity takes time. As we are being transformed, conformed more and more, we gain a handle on discerning God's will. And to encourage us, Paul even spoils the ending. Before we even get started, he tells us what it's like. God's will, he says, listen up, it's always good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, God doesn't need to test or discern his own will. We do. We need to experience firsthand for ourselves how wonderful his plans are, how his ways are always better. They are good, acceptable, and perfect. And we do that every time we participate in what he has prescribed. As we worship the Lord, as we are transformed, our assurance is strengthened. To trust God's will isn't just right, but better. Now, in 2022, we made it our goal for praxis to lay a solid foundation. Our vision statement was this, that the ministry of the word produces gospel community that serves others for the glory of Christ. And so for 2022, we started with that first half, acknowledging just the wide range of church and theological backgrounds. The core staff, the leadership here thought it was necessary to focus our attention on the word. We wanted to give you guys the right tools to see the power, relevancy, and accessibility of the Bible. That's why we had an inductive Bible study in the summer to equip you guys. That's why our dating series even was based in searching the scriptures for wisdom, for principles to apply. We really wanted to stress the richness and sufficiency of scripture. For this year, 2023, We're going to carry forth the same mission statement because the work is not done. The ministry of the word produces gospel community that serves others for the glory of Christ. This year, we're placing the emphasis on the second half. Although we still want to be striving to grow in our comprehension, our study of God's word, we also want to put what we're learning into action. We don't want to be a lopsided bobblehead where our heads are inflating and we're on the verge of tipping over, but the rest of our limbs and muscles have atrophied because we're not practicing what we're preaching. Our plan this year is really to push our word-based worship of God forward into how we serve as a community of believers. And that's something we're thinking through for the events we plan, the arrangement of small groups and other activities we have in store for praxis. And in God's providence, we resume our study in Romans with chapters that exhort us to do exactly that, to apply the glorious gospel. In the following weeks and months, Paul will get into the dirt with us. He will show us what Christian devotion looks like in serving, in loving others, in bearing persecution. But for tonight, he plants us at the starting line, at the base of this mountain. And he has us beholding the glory of God until we come, until we turn from the world, present our bodies, renewing our minds in worship of him. Let's pray.
God, we ask you to do what only you can do, to raise the dead to life, to renew our stubborn minds that we would be humble before you, our almighty God, that as we survey your mercies, as we examine the good news of the gospel, it would then be natural for us to want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to give ourselves as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Lord, we want to worship you. And we pray that we would be humble enough to uh, confess and examine areas in which we have held back, which we have uh, have clung to as our own instead of relinquishing them to you. We ask that you would work in us and through us that Christ might be exalted, that through small groups and the fellowship we share, we might uh, sharpen one another to run the race well, to pursue Christ. And we ask that you do this as we digest your word and put it into practice in how we serve, how we love, how we are a community knit by Christ. We ask for your help in these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.